0: over 7 million different animals inhabit our planet.
1: I was looking at pictures and descriptions and trying to figure out how to best describe the shoe bill. I actually pulled up an image of Big Bird, which for those of you that aren't familiar.
0: What
2: can they teach us? And they found that they had this decline of 84%. That is a huge, huge number. So when you apply that to the shoe bill, like Angie said, amphibian decline fish decline these birds will decline
0: many species are in crisis and need your help join the movement at allcreaturespod.com welcome
2: to all creatures podcast this is chris
1: and i'm angie
2: we're already having fun with this thing like we're already having fun with this insane looking bird
1: Yes, Chris. Right before we started, I was like, "Look at this picture I found."
2: <laughs> it's so amazing.
1: Yeah, it's going to be a great podcast. We're talking all about the shoe bill today, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. was a collaboration. Since Chris and I are good podcast partners, we are a great team, and this was a collaboration on both of our parts. Because when Chris and I were chatting about what species to cover next, we were going back and forth on this and that, and we have a lot of a lot of wonderful things planned in the next couple of months. But Chris out of nowhere says, Oh my gosh, Angie, we have to do a stork.
2: Yes, yes.
1: Because for those of you that aren't aware, I'm actually due to give birth of my own little, my own little mammal. <laughs> number three. <laughs> Primate. Number three. number three here in about a month. And so Chris is like, a stork is perfect. It's just mm-hmm. iconic, it's relatable. And so with that, I of course was like, okay, cool. And then I'm looking at all these storks, and I first wanted to do a marabou stork because I've seen them in Africa. Mm-hmm. And I'm scrolling around, and then I see the shoebill stork, yes. and I say, and I say, yes, Chris, this is it, this is it. I because I saw a shoebill on social media probably about a month or so ago, and I don't remember mm-hmm. what feed it was on, but it was just an educational clip about this prehistoric-looking dinosaur-like bird with this amazing shoe bill that is just incredible. And we'll talk about yeah. it when we get to this description, but I said, that's the one, that's what we have to do. <laughs> without knowing, without
2: knowing it's other names either. First, we find out it's not a stork,
1: which we'll get to in evolution. <laughs> yeah, that was <laughs> pretty classic Chris Nanji. whoopsie daisy. <laughs> and then it's other names is Monster Face,
2: the Death Pelican whale head i was like okay maybe we
1: we don't want this associated with you giving birth in a few weeks but anyways oh chris i love it i had so much fun this week i probably watched more videos on the shoe bill than i have in several Mm -hmm. species that we've covered in the past few weeks to a month because i just can't stop looking at them on my slides that i've prepared i think i have four slides of just pictures of them (laughs)
2: Yes, I know. <laughs> and it, and, and I know. they're really
1: not, they're not for the audience. It's totally for no. me as I'm like yeah. looking at my notes because they're they are really fun. And quite frankly, they almost look like a giant Muppet to me. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But other people describe them as storks because they have a stork-like body or some say their legs are like ostrich legs or cassowary legs. And you'll have to stay tuned to find out if shoebills are as good as parents as storks. So that'll be a fun thing we'll discuss when we get to uh, breeding and behavior.
2: Yeah. I mean, before Pippa and I started dating, she used to send me pictures of this. She's like, what in the heck is this thing? And I was like, I I don't know. Is it real? It it looks like you said a puppet or a Muppet. And it's fascinating. This is a fascinating bird. We love doing birds. So this will be definitely a fun podcast. And stay tuned because I'm going to tell you the origination of why storks are associated with babies. If, if you don't know that, it is it, it, it is actually a story that's circulating around the globe. It's not just a, a Western or a European story. That's where it originated. But we'll, we'll talk about it towards the end, like why that became so popular that storks delivered babies. That was the thought, you know, that maybe you tell kids, you know, not really where babies come from, but storks bring them.
1: Well, Chris, I will tell you, take it from me. I'm heavily pregnant, eight plus yeah. months, and a stork delivering this thing to my house one night sounds way better than what's <laughs> about what's about yeah. to go down here in a couple of weeks. Because I've been down that road and I'm like, oh, I forgot about that. Ooh, I, ooh, I forgot about that. Eee. So yeah, seeing all these pictures yeah. of storks carrying babies, I'm like, that looks a lot easier and easier. Yeah. way more magical. <laughs> yes. But Chris, I will say there probably is nothing more magical than when that baby, newborn baby gets put on your chest for the first time. It's, it's, yeah. it, that, that feeling never gets old. That's for sure. But oh, uh, yeah. some of the stuff before that to get to that point is. It's <laughs> not fun. No. Uh, that's a different pod for a different day. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, we get to it later. Well, not with birds so much, but with other other that's mammal true. species. Mm-hmm. Uh, you women are just amazing, you know, give life and. I was we are warriors, all yes. the women
1: out there listening, regardless of your age, we are yeah.
2: warriors. You are. You are a lot of respect uh, after watching, you know, both my boys being born and, you know, it's just, a, it's an amazing experience. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm excited for you and John, uh, baby number three. So that's kind of dedicated to you, this this monster <laughs> face, death pelican.
1: I will take it. <laughs> Shoebills bills are cool. They are where it's at if you ask me. Right,
2: right. Well, before we get going, it just I gotta have to give the listeners thank you so much for sharing this episode. I see it across social media. Thank you for our new Patreon, folks. Like it's just amazing. The last few weeks we've had so many people join. Priscilla and Carol joined this week. Thank you so much. It just it warms me and Angie. It's helping us, helping conservation. Uh, again, it's we're updating the website. If you have not checked out the new episode pages please do. Dan is doing an incredible job. Uh, The the latest episodes, I have to go in and update all the older ones, but the latest ones look phenomenal. And, you know, we're putting in like a search bar, other things on the homepage to make it easy to navigate, you know, to look at different species that we've covered. Uh, But thank you so much. Again, a cup of coffee a month, your support us and what we do and, and support species. So thank you.
1: Yes, thank you to all of our Patreons out there. And also, I want to give a big shout out to M. Vor and LUTZX165. They both gave us a raving, wonderful review on iTunes, which is awesome. It helps generate more traffic for us and more exposure and therefore gets more people excited about the different species that we cover, which hopefully, ultimately helps them want to conserve them. So each review you give us is sincerely appreciated. And I hope to see many more in the weeks to come.
2: Thank you all so much for that. And I'm going to sit back and enjoy this. Describe that face. Like just good <laughs> luck. I've got the sizes. This is, I'll get the sizes out of the way so people can, can visualize this. This is a tall bird. This is it a is. big bird. It stands almost one and a half meters tall or 55 inches. So that's, Some are up to 60 inches. So that's five feet tall, you know, just under you. Mm -hmm. Their wingspan can be over eight and a half, close to eight and a half feet or two and a half meters. That's huge. They weigh up to 15 pounds or seven kilograms. That's a lot for a bird. This beak is giganto. So good luck. I'm going to enjoy this. (laughs) Drink my water and let's go. Just go. (laughs)
1: Well, it's funny you keep saying Big Bird, and I will say as I was looking at pictures and descriptions and trying to figure out how to to best describe the shoe bill, I actually pulled up an image of Big Bird, which for those of you that aren't familiar, there is a popular kids puppet show muppet show that- from, from the from the 70s maybe 80s <laughs> showing my age here hey, it's still on and it's still popular it's wonderful. okay 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 but big bird is one of the is one of the the muppets or puppets there that's very very tall but i want to look at their faces and then so i put <laughs> I'm such a dork this is this is not science for the for the record this is not a scientific <laughs> study that i did here but i put their pictures side by side and i was like huh they, there are some resemblances between Big Bird and a shoebill, different colors, mm-hmm. all that. I'll get to it. But, and as Chris mentioned, it does have a, a, a nice big wingspan, but the colors compared to Big Bird are totally different. Uh, a shoebill is going to be a combination of blue, gray, slate, or even dark gray that make up most of its color throughout its body. The belly is white and it does have some longer feathers on its breast that are often maybe a little bit darker in color. And one of my favorite parts about it, which reminded me of Big Bird, is on the back of its head, it has the same color plumage, like grayish, yeah. blue, gray, if you will, but tufts that stick up, but only like four or five feathers, like Mm-hmm. my kids or myself on a really bad hair day. It doesn't really make sense. It doesn't, it <laughs> yeah. doesn't go in any one direction. It's just kind of punk rock almost, if you will. Yep, yep. And the eyes are placed forward in front of the bill and they're usually like yellow, amber in color, but actually because of the blue gray plumage, a lot of times when you look at them and in different photos, it almost looks like they have blue eyes, which I think is really pretty, but I, I think it's just the lighting. Uh, if you get a little bit closer in there, they can, they're more yellow, gray whitish in color but they're very piercing and we're going to talk we'll talk about what's known as like the death the shoebill death stare so (laughs) it's scary and since they are similar to a stork if you think of their build or other water water type birds they do have a long neck but compared to like great blue herons or something it, it is a little bit shorter and thicker uh as far as the circumference of their neck and as i mentioned in the intro they do have these long almost ostrich or cassowary-like legs that that tend to be blackish in color, but they have really long toes. And Chris, with these exceptionally long toes, the middle toe can be up to seven and a half inches. Like, that's no joke. That's over half a foot. So... And researchers think that this adaptation might be because they spend a lot of time in the water and they'll even wade on different water vegetation. So maybe it helps them not float per se, but be able to stand on this vegetation without sinking when they're doing some of their hunting moves, which we'll discuss here in a little bit. So just a really prehistoric looking bird. But I saved the best for last. It's their shoebill. Uh, It's just this it's just this most prominent bill that I feel like I've ever seen on any bird for the most part. I mean, we obviously still need to cover a lot more birds out there, but it's just incredible. And it looks like a Dutch wooden shoe, which is where it gets one of its names from. It has many names, as Chris uh, said in the intro, but it's just massive. And it's actually one of the longer bills uh, in the bird species. It's the third longest bill behind the stork and the pelican, which is who it's related to. And we'll talk about that, but it's just very dramatic and it has a really big circumfront, So all the way around the upper and lower mandible of the bill. In fact, the circumfront is bigger than any other bird. So it's wide and big and tall and it's got it all going on in the color of the shoe bill, bill or beak it definitely stands out from their blue-gray slate color because it's it's got an orange-yellow tint to it. There's a little, maybe a little bit of gray highlights in it, so it's really just sticks out. And it's really big. I mean, it, it's just why why it has its name, right? The shoe bill. Yeah, yeah. But as you look closer, it's just not your average giant bill.
0: Mm-hmm. It,
1: It's actually really sharp on the sides and the edges, which is used to catch prey. And then on the upper bill or the upper mandible, it has a razor sharp hook. So from you can't really see it straight on, but from a side view, this hook is no joke. And it uses its hook really, really well. So... I think that part too makes it look more dinosaur-like because it's pretty unique, and it definitely uses this hook to stab and just decapitate some of its prey. Yeah,
2: it's it, it's the, the death pelican.
1: <laughs> yeah, I I mean I I still think it looks goofy, but yeah, when you zoom in on that that hook mm-hmm. on the uh, on the upper bill or the upper mandible, it's like mm-hmm. whoa, okay, yeah. this, and then and of course all these. Uh YouTube videos I was watching this past week seeing it catch its prey, and we 're talking mm-hmm. big prey, like not a little plurry
2: well we'll talk about young crocodiles i mean they 'll eat young crocodiles, like no joke and and then looking where they live i I think they need to be intimidating because they they're from Africa, so this is a bird that lives in central Africa, but i I would say a little bit more east. Because whenever we talk of Central Africa, I think of Congo, Zaire, you know, the old countries, uh, that region. So it is a little bit East Central Africa is where I would put them. And it's really the freshwater swamps is, is where they live and exist. So they start from Southern Sudan, go a little bit into Kenya, Tanzania, and then down to Zambia which is where you were right you went to zambia but you were doing some
1: yes work. Yeah. and i didn't yeah. i definitely did not see any shoebill in I no, no. i don't know if i was just in the wrong area or mm-hmm. depending how sparse they are i was in i was in northern Lu- luanga park right um but i was also i've been in tanzania but i was more eastern central tanzania and these guys are more western tanzania yeah
2: just on that edge mm-hmm. of tanzania mm-hmm. now there are there are small pockets in botswana and Cameroon and Mal- Malawi. So there are like, they find them there, but they're I think, you know, they're a little bit further away from the main populations of, of where they're located. Now, I, you know, introducing like, why I care about this bird? I mean, every time we talk about a bird, we talk about their critical ecosystem role. I know Angie's about to jump on that. Uh, the one thing I I did discover, I think you've said this before, correct me if I'm wrong, but.
1: Piscivore. Mm-hmm. Have you said that?
2: Yeah, okay, so fish eater.
1: Yeah, so yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's their diet is yeah. all fish, and so mm-hmm. they definitely play a critical role as an important predator in the swamps mm-hmm. and the marshes where they live, uh, keeping things in balance. And they can be a, when they're younger and things they can, of course, be a prey item for. Larger predators, but in the same instance, they can definitely hold their own. Mm-hmm. And they're also one of these canary in the coal mine type birds because shoebills need healthy ecosystems, healthy waterways to live and hunt in. And so if the water is not healthy or it's drying up due to climate change or uh, different swamp areas being dammed up for human encroachment purposes then these birds aren't going to make it. They're very, very vulnerable to habitat destruction, to human encroachment, and things like this. And so if you see shoebills on the water, which is a really fascinating and amazing thing that I want to do, it's on my bucket list, and I'm not Mm -hmm. alone. Uh, Mm -hmm. The shoebill was considered to be one of the most five desirable birds to see in Africa by bird watchers. That's awesome. Okay. So the yeah, the true bird yeah, nerds yeah. out there, they're like, girl, we what are you talking about? We, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. we knew about this bird. This is awesome. We're we're all dying to see it. Uh, and so I and so now it's definitely been bumped up on my list. And it's also, if you see one, it's a sign that the waterways are healthy and thriving, and it's got a good fishing population. And a good fishing population not only helps the food web of animals, but also the local fishermen on the side, because because it's really important for the locals to have fish for the village to eat, things like that. And so it's this whole important dynamic of a healthy ecosystem that, of course, can provide for each other, not have too many of one species. It is a food web, but it's also just this important circle of give and take, and when a lake... Or a river or a swamp can provide locals with good fishing, they're happy as well. And when there are shoebills around, they can really help generate a lot of ecotourism to the different lake regions and swamp regions that they're found in through Africa. And so it is important that we keep an eye on them, and the shoebill is vulnerable throughout Africa, which to me is really sad because there's such a big, beautiful bird. And it would just be devastating to watch. Their numbers have been plummeting. Uh, in fact, in Uganda, where they have a, like a small little niche that they inhab- inhabit, they're actually critically endangered. And I was watching one YouTube video where these filmmakers are trying to go like find the last fourteen in this certain area, like mm-hmm. fourteen. I That's know. Not... So once again, as a, as a overall population. They, they are declining, but there are a lot of people that care about them. And towards the end of the podcast, we'll, I'll mention some organizations that are definitely helping, that are, are helping, uh, fight for shoebill conservation.
2: Now you bring up, it's funny because we didn't really collaborate on it, but yeah, you, you bring up such a critical point that I was going to jump on with this, this episode is the freshwater crisis or freshwater fish crisis that's going on around the world, we have talked about bird populations plummeting and and in a future episode, obviously we'll, we'll highlight that because that's a phenomenon seen around the globe. But we were recently contacted by a a conservation organization that wants to come on and talk about this freshwater fish crisis or freshwater ecosystem crisis is a, is a better way to address it. The organization is called Shoal. So when we get that set up and get that interview going, You know, we'll talk a lot about this and do some more freshwater species, but it's really in response to a report that came out last year in 2020, and basically it says, you know, the freshwater biodiversity crisis is urgent, and it's an area that I know we talked a little bit about it in Hellbender, which I think was episode 137 about our ecosystems. You know, fascinating species uh, in North America, but they said you know, especially looking at freshwater fish, populations have declined by an average of 84% in the last 50 years. 84%. That's like one in three fish are threatened with, freshwater fish are threatened with extinction. And the decline is twice that of the oceans, right? Or land. So here's a, a crisis that we, you know, we're, we highlight a lot, the oceans, especially in plastic-free July, you know, we talk about the crisis in, in the, the, the saltwater species. We really need to start going back and look at these freshwater species because, you know, we did eels. We did all these other species. We didn't really touch upon it. Now my eyes are open like, whoa, here's a biodiversity hotspot that we haven't really talked about. So some data from the Shoal website, it was, it was very, very fascinating. Shoal is S-H-O-A-L if anybody's interested and wants to Google that. But again, they talk about how diverse these freshwater systems are, even though they cover less than 1% of the the Earth's surface. There's over 126,000 species of animals and plants. I wonder if you throw in all the insects that are yet to be classified in there. And they're they're very diverse, like coral reefs or tropical forests. There's a lot of biodiversity in there. So this World Wildlife Foundation report said they monitored uh, 3,358 populations of 880 different species. And they found that they had this decline of 84%. That is a huge, huge number. So when you apply that to the shoe bill, like Angie said, amphibian decline, fish decline, these birds will decline. They will leave the area. That ecosystem will start to collapse. And like, in North America, 53 freshwater species have gone extinct in the last 100 years. The extinction rate is almost 900 times the natural extinction rate, which is normally – I'm going back to episode zero or one when I did this in the beginning of doing the research. I think it was the natural extinction rate is like two species a year across the planet. And we're seeing mass die off at a, a rate that's not sustainable. So all that development in North America in the 20th century drove this extinction rate way up. So like Angie said, some of the things that are major threats damming of rivers and streams, uh, ex- you know, overfishing, you know, we, we siphon off so much water for human use and not only agriculture, but also, you know, for our gardens, our lawns, drinking water,
1: Right now, in the next few weeks, there's actually a vote here in my local community Mm -hmm. about uh, allowing a bottling company to continue siphoning off our natural spring waters. And they're taking like a million gallons uh, a day
0: and Mm -hmm. putting it in
1: plastic bottles and selling it to people. And of course, there's a lot of naysayers to it, uh, but then... but. The vote's still up in the air as far as how it's going to go down and whether they're going to allow this company that's already been doing it to basically keep the permitting to continue to do it. And, of course, a lot of the data shows that although our springs are natural and they keep being fed, so the decline in volume is not really visible, like it might be in a contained waterway or pond or river, uh, but it is it is significant and they do think it is potentially doing damage to some of our ecosystems and wildlife in the area and to me of course i'm like why are we taking it and just putting in plastic bottles are going to end up Mm. in the ocean anyways like it's just so goofy we're blessed in florida to have amazing clean drinking water and i don't know you know i don't have all the answers anyways but it is fresh water is a a commodity i mean it really it it really is and I obviously want communities that need fresh water and more fresh water to have access to it. Uh, But here in the States, that's usually not a problem and that's where this bottled water is most likely going. So yeah, uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens with it. Um, it's
2: disposable everything's disposable right disposable society and you know it's that's why we we really push not to buy plastic water bottles it's hard sometimes i get it i feel guilty every time i'm somewhere and i'm dying of thirst and i'm like where's my water bottle it's at home and i'm half an hour 40 minutes away and i'm like okay well i've got a headache i need to drink water right uh but it, it should be a rarity with most people, there's your there's a tip of the week rarity to buy plastic water bottles. Yeah,
1: I keep them in my car or my backpack, just extra empty bottles. And that way, if yeah, if I do forget my travel canteen, I have backups. That's
2: with you. Yeah, with the kids, I'm always like bringing water bottles with them and backpacks, and you know, I need to buy a couple more. Uh,
1: the reusables, good, yeah, yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. So it's 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 a major issue, and you know, we just I know from our standpoint here, at all creatures podcast. We're going to highlight more of this. I'm going to do some more digging. I'm going to set that interview up with Shoal. It's it's got to be something that we need to look at more.
1: Absolutely. I think it'll be a good collaboration to uh, talk to Shoal
2: yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. All right, so let's get into some evolution of this dinosaur, period.
0: It's a, <laughs> it a is, bird.
1: It is. Yes.
2: I'm going to start with the species name because it, it, here it is. If, if you don't believe this is a dinosaur, it looks like a dinosaur. Its species name is Ballyneesips rex. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. a dinosaur name, period.
1: <laughs> yes. <laughs> Ballyneesips rex. Well, and the the Bellinier comes from whale, right. so because it's also known as the whale headed stork or the whale head, right? As well, right. so and then Rex obviously, yeah, R E X. Well, and and, yeah, and and of course, my kids would say dinosaurs are right. living birds.
2: Right, right, right. I mean, birds came from dinosaurs, so mm-hmm. it makes sense. Now, looking at their classification, it, the class is AVs, but like we said, it's not a stork. I'm sorry, Angie. <laughs> yes.
1: I love this podcast. I learn things every week. That's yeah. why you and I do this. And mm-hmm. I just love, we were like, it's a stork. It's a stork. Wait, yeah. five minutes into research, I'm like, it's not a stork. <laughs> not a stork. I, and I almost texted you to be like, ooh, Chris, you know, maybe we should go back to the mail boot, which we will cover because those are so yeah. cool. There's so many storks that are cool. But yeah. But I was like, no, I am having too much fun watching these YouTube videos of shoe bills. So we're we're sticking to it. (laughs) They are related to storks. So I'll let you go from there.
2: Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, distantly. But the order is Pella So these are medium to large size water birds. They all have four toes. Some are webbed. We found out some aren't. So the shoe bill is not. And about 67 plus species around the world that are all from this order, which is which is really fascinating. I'm, I'm actually going to talk a little bit more about it. With that being said, there are four families within this order. So I'm going to try to stumble through some of these. So the Bellcipididae is the shoebill. It's its own genus, its own part of this uh, its own family part of this order. It is unique. Okay.
1: Very <laughs> Clearly. unique. Clearly.
2: Very unique. Then you have the hammer cop, which is scopitidae, which is again closest relative to the shoe bill. Has some characteristics of it, but not quite as extreme. Then this this family's fun. The Thurskimma today. So the Ibises and Spoonbills.
1: Mm-hmm. That's my Florida which are, birds. Yeah,
2: we gotta do some of them. They're so cool. There's so many cool birds. Then you have Arinidae, so the herons, the egrets, the bitterns. So that is all part of this order, and so the shoebills just very, very unique. The genus the Nisipididae, They're the only species. There's no other species in there, and that we well, like said. And
1: that is, and that's just another reason to tack on why I care about shoebills. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're There's not unique. other subspecies, nothing like that. It is the mm-hmm. shoebill. It is in a genus of its own. So to lose it to extinction would be really sad for just so many reasons.
2: And then just quickly, it was interesting, Angie, reading this, that you would think pelicaniforms, pelicans. That's what I thought. Absolutely. But But molecular DNA, as we keep doing this and more research coming out, has said, no, they're not that closely related. So they have been placed in their own order than the Pelican informs. Now looking at evolution, uh, there wasn't a lot on the shoe bill, obviously, uh, you know, uh, but again, birds started emerging 160 million years ago during the Jurassic period. I, every time I do this, it, it just blows me away. Cause you always talk about like the most recent, like megafauna that we talk about that are crazy. I still look around. New Zealand's very unique. This United States was very unique. All these different uh, environments. 160 million years ago, you had such diverse animals, birds emerging, dinosaurs, the height of the dinosaurs,
1: like just insane. It just drives my it just my mind goes. Wow, wow. It really is, Chris. I, I guess I was always just a mammal girl, but now that I have these two little boys that are so into dinosaurs, that we read about them every night. And I just keep thinking to myself, this is just, it's so incredible, it and is, I want to, and is. I want to know more. And yeah, I mean, wow, to go back yeah. in time, right? I know, I
2: know, I know. Oh, it's just amazing. But so, the pelicaniforms emerged at the end of the Cretaceous period. So, birds started 160 million years ago. This family or order of birds started emerging about 66 million years ago, and that is when the fifth mass extinction happened. Around then, right? That's where we see mammals arising, all that. And I did a little digging because I, I thought it was curious, okay, why did birds just explode when the earth pretty much we thought was dead, wiped out, right. you know, what ni- 90% of life on earth. And I thought, you know, obviously dinosaurs were out of the picture. So less competition or to be preyed upon, but a new hype, a newer hypothesis is this was very interesting is a lot of, Forests just completely were evaporated or died off, burned off with fires. They disappeared. There wasn't a lot of natural forest left. So all the tree living birds died off. It was the ground dwelling birds that survived, and they survived for yeah for thousands of years until the forest came back. So what? How they know this is you know New Zealand is, is a great place where they do a lot of this in the United States, that boundary area that they know they can go in, dig and, and they see this dark soil. Like this was a bad time to live on the earth. Sure. A lot of, you know, soot and stuff like that. The KPTA boundary, I think it is. They find about 70 to, to 90% of the spores that you would find in trees and stuff are from ferns, not trees. So ferns survived, which we have a ton here in New Zealand. It's so beautiful. And then thousands of years later, forests starting coming back and they can measure some of the spores in there. So it, it, so that's where they came. The, the trees were gone. So the tree-dwelling birds were, were died off. These ground-dwelling birds must have survived because that gave birth to the 10,000 plus species of birds we have today. So I love it. Fascinating stuff. I love evolution. It just is always a fun rabbit hole to go down.
1: Oh yeah. Birds are just incredible. And so many different species. So so much to cover, Chris. This yeah. pod. We I know we've got, a, we've got a job for a lifetime. I know. I know. We just, we know. just need to make some money. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I make like two cents an hour, but it's okay. It's okay. It's a, I describe it as a passion project. It is. It is.
2: It is. And we love, we it. love it. We love doing it. We love doing it. Um just some quick facts because we want to get to behavior. Some of the behavior is amazing. L- these birds live into their 30s. I saw 36 is like the the top range, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, this cracked me up, and uh, kind of Angie's favorite with poop. So I these love birds,
1: poo. Po- <laughs> I love talking about poo. <laughs> pretty These soon I'll, I'll have a new baby and i'll be like oh and this was a, a soft one a green one. Uh, <laughs> oh, it's the worst diapers i do change diapers
2: by the way but just uh all right so this bird cloth diapers. To- so my my, yes. best,
1: my best friend Nani told me today she because uh, we had gotten we'd given away all of our other diapers our cloth mm-hmm. diapers and she just told me today that's my my baby gift is she's oh good getting oh, and they're not cheap the cloth diapers no are, but if you do the math on it they in uh, the over run. over time oh yeah I mean because uh here in the US, a disposable diaper is about twenty five cents.
2: It's so insane, yeah, it's and insane. they go through what like a baby's like ten oh, a day in their newborns. Tons yeah, that's a insane, where yeah.
1: a cloth diaper might be anywhere from five to twelve dollars US, or it depends on how many you mm-hmm. buy in bulk. Which she's going to get me a big box in bulk. Uh, that they, they they're more expensive, but you're using them over and over and over and over, mm-hmm. and it's so much better for the environment. So, anyways, yeah. that that's my little cloth diaper pitch. Yeah, I've cleaned plenty of cloth diapers. <laughs> I Just... know. Yes. You're, <laughs>
2: Yep both my boys uh, well speaking Anyways, of
1: poop, poo speaking of poo talk
2: these birds like to poop on their legs they should wear diapers
1: <laughs> well no, no because that's true it's no important.
2: because it is is because bird poop is mostly liquid it coats their legs with liquid that the warm or hot blood that's passing through it causes it to evaporate which causes some evaporating cooling So, it helps cool them off. It's like when we sweat, thank goodness we don't rub poop all over ourselves. It would just be the most worst thing ever. But they like to poop on their legs because it helps them stay
1: cool. Yeah. And I learned this term. It's called urohydrosis. So, I thought that makes sense. Uh Uro. Yeah. Urine, poo, Mm -hmm. and then hydrosis. So, yeah. And the other fun thing that they do is something known as guller fluttering. And this is where a shoebill will open its mouth and flutter back and forth its upper throat muscles, and it'll stay in this position or this behavior for a long time, and this h- helps promote heat loss. It can be considered similar to dogs panting and or human sweating. So they do the color well, fluttering and the yeah. urohydrosis, and yeah. they cool off, and they're happy. Yeah. Which in, a- I mean, look- in hot Africa. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Yeah, look where you're at. <laughs> yes. I. Uh, the term Africa hot is a real thing. I yeah. stayed in a tent uh, during the, the dry season, and we would collect data in the morning. Uh, we'd go out around dawn and come back in around 11, grab a little bite to eat, and then you were in your tent just trying to stay cool till about 4 p.m., and then we'd go back out in the bush and collect more data. So, Dare
2: I ask, you did not... Uh... Apply anything to your legs that should not. be
1: <laughs> You know what, water. Chris? That's a great question. I, there was probably times where I would have. No, no, uh, I, I was, I was not privy to uh, urohydrosis at that time. <laughs> Good. Okay. I just drank lots of water, and I just do double checking. I didn't check do it. any or fluttering because that probably just would have overheated me. <laughs> anyway.
2: All right, here, here you go for the listeners. What environment is hotter for you, Florida in the heat of the summer, or Africa?
1: Oh, great question. Yeah. I, of course, have spent a lot more time in Florida than mm-hmm, on my, mm-hmm. my, my quick little trips to Africa. I feel as though that direct heat from 11 a.m. to about 2 or 3 p.m. in Africa, a little bit more dry heat. I was in Tanzania. So it probably depends mm-hmm. on, of course, which Where region are, yeah. of Africa you're in. That, to me, definitely seemed more intense.
2: Okay, okay.
1: But it's not super scientific because in Florida I have air conditioning and I work outside a lot with, with the horses or when we were doing research projects. Uh, but Florida is more humid and I'm really good at sweating. Like I'm a very, <laughs> very efficient, big time sweater. And yeah, so I'm yeah. able, I was, I don't know. I think I was able to cool off more where in the dry heat of, tanzania that i was in it seemed a little it seemed a little more intense so okay, okay, okay but i would crazy. go back in a heartbeat i yeah, would pick a, i would it. pick an africa summer over a florida summer anytime
2: yeah i florida to me was just the worst because the humidity
1: and just for all my northern friends love you guys it's snowing big time in michigan and chicago <laughs> right now uh, yeah! i would pick a florida or an africa summer anytime over a chicago or michigan winter
2: no, thanks. No, thanks. Cal- this so. California boy. Yeah, this California boy. <laughs> well, it yeah, not- you
1: can't be like California weather, especially San Diego. No. Like it's perfect every day. So.
2: Yeah, pretty much. Mm. <laughs> pretty much. Every mm. day is just go to the beach if it's hot. It's, it's great. All right. Shoe bills. Another interesting fact is uh, they flap their wings at a rate of 150 flaps per minute, which is almost one of the slowest in the world. The fastest in the world is a hummingbird a specific species of hummingbird that 80 beats per second this bird does 150 flaps per minute and again this is a bird that doesn't migrate they 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 don't fly over super long distances but when they do they flap slowly and soar we've talked about another species so that was quite that was interesting
1: it is a slow flapping just due to their giant wingspan
2: yeah huge wingspan and and again a, a bird that evolved not to it, Remember, we talk a lot about in other, especially hummingbird. I think we talked a lot about the energy efficiency and how much energy goes into flying. Mm -hmm. So this is a bird that doesn't migrate. Which we've got to get in some great migration birds.
1: We talked about the Arctic Turn, but we'll we'll maybe save that for uh, a different day
2: or July, yeah, because that one goes pole to pole. (laughs) Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. But Pole to pole.
2: If it migrates, pole to pole. That's insane. That's insane. So anyways, yeah. So they, they just don't fly long distances. They just they haven't evolved or, or needed to. Nothing, no pressure to develop a great flying. Now, looking at what they eat, a, a whole wide, things like you said, mainly fish. They like catfish, some tilapia, specifically lungfish in those murky waters they really
1: enjoy. Yeah, Chris, and I wasn't as familiar with lungfish, and so that's actually almost eel-like that and it grows, it can grow up to six feet long, and it's one of the shoebills' yeah. f- favorite, favorite food. And right. they have to, a lot of times, like use that beak and that hook to to dig it Find out it. of its burrows yeah. that it's Find in. It. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, because it's all murky water, they're down there, mm-hmm. they're not like especially in catfish, too. You know, catfish like really kind of murky type water. They eat other things, Angie, like we said, uh, baby crocodiles or young crocodiles. Monitor lizards, snakes, frogs, rodents, other waterfowl. They are the death pelican. They are, they, they're, they're no joke. But do it yeah. a critical role to that ecosystem.
1: Well, yeah, Chris. And I had a lot of fun reading about shoebill hunting tactics. So they're known to have two different styles. They have this one where they wade and walk slowly. So just wading in the water, just slowly creeping along bam, snatching up right. the food. Yeah, yeah. The other one that involves the shoebill death stare is the stand and wait. And shoe bills are well known for basically the tendency to stand like a statue for really long periods of time and just wait. And wait and wait and wait patiently and just stare. And of course, once the food comes, well, bam, they grab it. And the researchers that are studying the area where shoebills are found talk about how they can actually get kind of close to them. Uh, I mean, up to like six feet. So get some really good photographs or video Mm -hmm. footage of them hunting Mm -hmm. because they're just standing there. And they've reported that the shoebill stork will just basically stare at them. (laughs) Not, you know, not do anything, not attack them, not get mad. I mean, they're not docile, but they're definitely anybody who's ever tried to get close to a bird unless it's like a pigeon basically mm-hmm. forget about mm-hmm. it like they're gonna leave of course right or,
0: right right yeah, uh, yeah.
1: but yeah nope not not the shoe bill it stands its ground and it's staring and it'll stare right back at you and the joke is that it will win because it just has a very penetrating stare which is really interesting but it's this evolutionary skill to hunt and let the fish basically swim to it mm-hmm mm-hmm but there's also some anecdotal evidence of a shoebill utilizing hippo habitat as a fishing grounds because when the hippos swim, a lot of times they move fish around because the fish mm-hmm. don't want to be near them, and yeah. the fish come more to the surface. And okay. as they come to the surface, well, bam! This the shoebill can just grab them up,
2: nab them, yeah,
1: yeah. So just just really cool, cool behaviors. Yeah.
2: Some fun animals in Africa like oh just it's just uh, you're so lucky. I can't wait to get down to where you've been. Well, I mean behavior is a huge thing with them like looking through it. There's some incredible stuff with these birds. What are some of the other things that that they're doing?
1: Well, they're typically hanging out during the day, so they're diurnal. Once in a while they'll hunt at nighttime if the moon is bright, but the daytime is pretty much when they're going to be active. And a, a lot of their time is spent hunting. But the cool thing is their time is not wasted because when they are hunting, they're about 60% accurate. So six out of 10 times when they, wha-bam, when they strike at prey, they're going to catch it. And when they catch it, they often use that razor sharp bill to hook it and often decapitate it and swallow it down. So yep. it's, pretty, it's, <laughs> it's pretty dinosaur-like. Like it's like a T-Rex. So,
2: this was supposed to be a lovey-dovey I baby... Know.
1: We've got this T. Hopefully, we're, hopefully bird. we're not jinxing me. And maybe if maybe maybe if it's a boy, I'll have to name it Rex, right?
0: Yeah, there, uh, you go, there
1: you go. But Chris, they also do this kind of cool behavior where they can walk on water. Not really. What they do is they stand on perches of floating vegetation. And they're not a super light bird, right? They're they're a tall, big bird, if you will. But Because of the way they distribute their weight with their giant feet and just the thickness of the weeds and the paprius grass, the Nile grasses and things like that that is in the swamp, they can just hang out there and look like they're basically floating on vegetation. And although they're not an aggressive bird and they tolerate humans, like I said, encroaching in on their area, especially even if they're in a hunting mode. Uh, they're not social, so they can be often photographed foraging together, but they're never going to be super close. They're not. They're not. They're not going to have. You're not going to see flocks of shoe like you do with several other species of birds. And Chris, one of my favorite behaviors is to top off how unique they are. Is they don't have a love song or anything like that. In fact, they're pretty quiet. They just do the stare and they hunt. But those giant bills come in handy to make music. So they'll participate in what's known as bill clattering, which is often seen in other species of storks. So adults will do this when they want to greet each other or they'll do it to their young or the young will do it to them. And it basically sounds like a jackhammer noise because that bill mm-hmm. is big, right? It has this big circumference that we're talking about. Uh, and by jackhammer, I mean Jackhammer.
2: That's nuts. It does sound like a jackhammer. That's a good way to describe it.
1: So that was the bill clattering or the jackhammer noise in the beginning and then some clapping after that. So I just, I love that. And And then the young, which we're going to talk about here in a second when we get to reproduction, they're also known when they beg for food from the adults to make like a hiccup sound, which is just super charming as well. Some intimidating
2: parents, though. Like I'd be looking up at them, like, "Okay, hey, don't eat me." But they love you, you know. So, what? Uh, you know, bird behavior. I guess bird reproduction. You know, kind of covering some of that.
1: Yeah, Chris. Well, since we're around Valentine's Day here, uh, it they are somewhat of a romantic couple. They're typically monogamous, and as you mentioned, they they don't migrate. And shoebill breeding season is typically lined up with local water levels, which, as Chris and I mentioned, water plays such a key element in their role and in their life. And they're going to get together typically at the end of the rainy season when the water levels are high and the fish is good, everybody's fat and happy, or basically the beginning of the dry season. And unfortunately, there's not a ton known about their courtship behavior, but researchers do think they're going to do a lot of that Bill clapping, that jackhammer noise, and then some head bobs. And there's been reports that male and females will also soar overhead and advertise their beauty and their flying abilities, their, their slow flaps of their wings. And then if another male tries to encroach on a male and female that are bonding and courting, then often that that bill clap, that loud noise can be used to scare him off, so it comes in handy as both a wooing mechanism, but then also scaring away uh, the unwanted fellows to the area. Because shoe bills are known, they are tough. They will vigorously defend their territory. Uh, they don't want any other sh- shoe bills getting in the way once it's breeding time. And when they do get together and find each other for breeding season. Both parents will build the nest, and I found their nest-building behavior to be really cool uh, because they build a platform that it will float on the water. And so they'll use different aquatic water materials, grasses, sticks, things like that. Uh, But I just thought that was really, really cool. And depending on where they're located, they do like to be sheltered like in deeper swamps with tall grasses, of course, hidden because of their little ones that are coming. So that's where sometimes human encroachment or fishermen, things like that can disturb those areas. And a mama shoebill is going to typically lay one to three eggs. And they're, they're a pretty good size egg. They're 80 to 90 millimeters or three to three and a half inches. And they can weigh up to 164 grams or six ounces. So pretty, pretty good size egg. The incubation of the eggs will last about 30 days and then when the shoebills hatch, they're super cute. They're covered in like gray, silver, white, down, silky down feathers.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And Chris, I had to Google some pictures because adult shoebills are just super fun to look at, but so so are uh, little chicks because they have that giant shoebill still. They're just a very underdeveloped. And once they're born, shoebill chicks will develop their adult feathers, takes a couple of months, and then they typically Fledge around 90 days, so three, four months. But they can't really fly, because probably because they're so big, until um, they're about 110 days old. So it takes a little while. They're a little slower to develop than other species of birds. But they're very, very dependent on their parents. And so so I will say, a shoebill's a really good parent, both mom and dad. Uh, they take turns brooding guarding, feeding, shading the nests, And in typical bird fashion, what they'll do is they will regurgitate their food to the offspring when they bring it to the nest. But what's a really cool behavior and really genius use of that giant bill is they also will scoop up water and bring the young water from its bill. It's like a canteen okay. or a bucket.
0: Yeah, yeah So yeah, that's yeah. how they
1: can get them fresh water. In fact, the parents, both male and female shoebills, will take care of the offspring for a month or two after they fledge. So even when they're independent, they still will help keep them going. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. However, there is one not great behavior that's sometimes exhibited with shoebill offspring and parents. Saw that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. so, So when shoebills do... Hatch more than one egg, so if there's like two or three offspring, sometimes the parent is forced to pick the more dominant, strong chick to feed and raise, and it will usually let the younger or weaker sibling die off. So that's kind of sad. Um, yeah, it's a little, rough. It's a little rough, yeah. The wild, I yeah. mean, it's obviously nature, and I don't want to judge, uh, but. Evolution has its own reasons for everything, and, and maybe the parent knows best. that A weak one isn't isn't going to make it, anyways. Mm-hmm. But uh, mm-hmm. so then also, when we talk about monster bird, that bigger dominant sibling will also do a lot of pecking and picking on mm-hmm. the weaker mm-hmm. si- sibling, and almost showing off to the parent like hey i'm the one like pick me pick me yeah
2: yeah yeah yeah.
1: which my sister tried for years but it didn't work
2: (laughs) you're the second child (laughs) and like i said the third child the forgotten child that's in your belly it's like we're forced (sighs) to develop and evolve differently because there's no attention mom is you know between two other older kids and the two older kids yeah the two older kids know they know how to get mom's attention they know how to and that third kid you're like yeah, uh, you're forgotten you're totally forgotten I know, so
1: i know but i promise i will do better than a shoe bill <laughs> <Mom> <laughs> please we just grief. feed it feed yes. your baby take care I will, of it i will bring it water oh. in my mouth and food. thank you <laughs> Jeez. but as these shoe bills grow uh it takes them about three years be- before they become sexually mature so when we speak mm-hmm, of, mm-hmm. talk about generation in- intervals And the fact that a shoebill is considered vulnerable by the IUCN, they're not going to have this quick turnaround because once again, even if they lay three eggs, probably only one or two is going to make it. And then it takes those chicks three years to become sexually mature and and the breeding depends on what's happening with the water Mm -hmm. and how healthy the ecosystem is that they live in. So the breeding and reproduction isn't always so straightforward of just like, oh, if there's more of them, there'll be more birds.
2: Right, right. Yeah. Well, we do need more of them because they're vulnerable, as you said, and we population maybe up to 15,000 saw some statistics, eight to 9,000. You name some areas where they're they're in trouble, habitat destruction, major threat, you know, and, and losing these fresh waterways. So, you know, and just over the planet, we're seeing that huge decline in bird numbers. As far as species, about 12% of all bird species now are heading towards extinction, which is alarming. So, you know, we'll keep covering these animals. Uh,
1: organizations out there fighting for shoe bills? Yeah, Chris. I want to first give a big shout out to our buddy Mike at the San Diego Zoo because the San Diego Zoo does have shoe mm-hmm. bills and so helped mm-hmm. us into some videos. And also they can be seen on exhibit at the Dales World Aquarium. But there's really not that many zoos that house them. Uh, mm-hmm. In fact, the only other ones that I could find are the Prague Zoo in Czech Republic. Mm-hmm. hi To all of our friends in Prague.
0: Yes. And
1: then the Prairie Diaza Zoo in Belgium. So okay. hello, Belgian friends.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: So it's not really found that frequently under human care. And I'm not sure if that's just because its numbers are low in general. Mm-hmm in the mm-hmm. wild. Uh, but it really, uh, like I said, where it is under human care, I'm sure I'm missing several zoos. So I apologize um, for those that I'm missing, but it, it is a hit. It, it, people mm-hmm. love watching zookeepers feed it and seeing it is just super impressive in person. So Chris will put some videos and links on our show notes. So it'll just, just really get you loving the shoe bill if you don't already after this podcast. And so for conservation organizations, Chris, I just want to give a big shout out to two of them and we've covered them both, but it's because they're amazing. Uh, the first one is the edge of existence and they can be found at www.edgeofexistence.org. And they do research projects trying to conserve species in general that are way out on a phylogenetic tree that don't have a lot of subspecies or other relatives. And as Chris and I pointed out today, the shoebill is super unique in its own genus, right? So if we lose them, it would be a real devastating loss to just the diversity of species that we have on this planet. And so the edge of existence, you can follow them on social media. They pick species that we really don't want to lose. And then they, they donate money to, Uh, different researchers that are studying them and trying to conserve them. And they're based out of the Zoological Society of London. So hats off to them. We'll put them in our show notes. And then, of course, BirdLife International, which can be found at www.birdlife.org. Once again, a fantastic organization to follow on social media. You learn a lot of cool bird facts. And of course, they are supporting shoebill conservation. And a couple of years ago had released a new plan on how to help conserve the marshes and the swamps that shoebills inhabit in different parts of Africa. So we'll put birdlife.org on our show notes as well. Just two fantastic organizations that are not only fighting for shoebills, but for several species. And so uh, we, we, we definitely need to get interviews with those two organizations because I, I love them so much. I talk yeah, about them I know, them a lot. I know.
2: Yeah, we should reach out to them. I'll, I'll, I'll get on it. Um, it's amazing, you know, the people fighting around the planet. So thank you. You know, that out of all of this we've done the last three plus years, Angie, that, that has always been the, the one that gives me so much hope, that there's so many people out there fighting every day for these animals. So, so thank you to them. Just to end this, like I said, water conservation, get your reusable water bottle, but more so like protecting our fresh waterways, washing machines, make sure you set your appropriate water levels. I am very aware. I put it on cold. If it's a light load, I put it on small, medium, large, turn off the sink when you're brushing teeth or shaving, you know, conserve water that way, take shorter showers Something like install, or a rain if you're barrel. like
1: me, just skip showers altogether. All together, I mean, it's a pandemic. Do you really need <laughs> yeah. a shower? Are you really going anywhere?
2: No, no, no. no. <laughs> but you could install a rain barrel to use in your gardens. I've seen those. Oh, those great are idea! Popular. Yeah,
0: mm-hmm. yeah.
2: That, and then you water your garden with that way. So ways we can do that. Now to get to this, sorry, I forgot to address it. Why storks are associated with babies? So it was held that the ancient story is it's German folklore that storks found babies and brought them in their beaks or in a basket. Right. And they either gave the baby to the mom or dropped it down a chimney. And then women in Germany would put sweets on their windows to attract storks because they wanted babies.
1: Right. So, I know, probably, I probably put too many <laughs> sweets on my shelves <laughs> quite clearly. Yeah, it's COVID. <laughs> now,
2: That was old. It didn't become popular until Hans Christian Andersen in the 19th century wrote a book called The Storks. So then that story was told, became very big. It's popular all over the world, Asia, South America. So storks are associated with babies. So in honor of our mother at the other end of this microphone, Angie, I'm proud of you. You're an amazing mom. You have an amazing partner that supports you. I can't wait for little baby number three to come along. Don't know if it's a boy or girl. We don't. We,
1: we uh, we're old fashioned. We like to be surprised.
2: Uh, I just hope it's not a shoe bill baby.
1: But if
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes, and I won't. But, I will be a shoe bill parent in some ways, and other ways I will not. Yes, but uh, yes, no. Thank you, Chris, for that. Actually, uh, baby number three, a uh, little baby blueberry number three, uh, kicked. Right now when we're oh. talking all oh, about storks. So.
2: Well, I'm sending lots of love to baby number three. And uh, thank you, Angie, for doing this, you know, being – as pregnant as you are, and still chasing two <laughs> little boys around three, if you include John, three little boys around.
1: Yes, the house. and lots of pets but, uh, and horses. Yeah. yeah, I was I was mucking out horse stalls a day. You can't keep a far, you can't keep a farmer down. No way.
2: No, uh, <laughs> especially when you were the day before you gave birth. The number two, you're in the lab yes, and laptop. of course, yeah. of course, I'm
1: classified to as advanced maternal age. So I yeah. uh, just all sorts oh, of gosh. of yeah. uh, fun things going on. But I'm very healthy, and I'm very happy to be here and yeah. talking about shoe bills today. Would just really made my whole week yeah, a lot more fun. I kept kept showing John and the boys pictures of them. Look at this picture. Look at this video. So, if you haven't already, definitely check out our show notes or just Google or YouTube them so you can really get a sense for how charming uh they are looking they are.
2: Yeah. Yeah, check out the webpage. We'll have all that linked. But uh thank you and we'll be back next week.
1: Thank you everyone. Bye-bye.
0: Listen. Learn. Share. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com.